My name is Hamilton George, and uh, as Brian said, I'm one of the pastors alongside. Uh, I'm a pastor alongside Brian, and uh, I'll be uh, with you this morning, uh, preaching from First and Second Timothy and Titus is where uh, we have been, and uh, where we will be for the next few weeks and months throughout our summer series uh, this time. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at this phrase, um, the central uh, em- emphasis of First, Second Timothy, and Titus uh, being how we ought to conduct ourselves uh, within God's household, uh, the church, the uh, pillar and foundation of truth. And so we started out with that, and that's kind of been a guiding uh, phrase for us as we've been going along the weeks. What does that exactly mean? What does it mean how we are to conduct ourselves, and what does it mean for the church, those gathered together, what does it mean for us to be a pillar and foundation of God's truth? And so uh, when we started looking at that, we started to look at how uh, our actions as individuals either contribute or take away from the establishment and the foundation of God's truth in the, in the earth. And so we ought to take seriously what it means then to follow God, to follow Christ, and to uphold him in all things. And so we'll continue in doing that this morning. Will you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer for our time together this morning and for our children as they're dismissed. Heavenly Father, you have given uh, children to us as a gift, Lord, and also as a responsibility to raise them that they might see your goodness and know your greatness. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for their classes, for their teacher, for the lesson, and for their hearts. God, that they would be in tune with your spirit this morning. Will you speak to them by your spirit? Will you wash them uh, by your regenerating work uh, in their hearts? And may they come to know you and serve you the duration of their life. Lord, be with us this morning in this service. Be with our hearts and our minds as we explore what it means to follow you, what it means to be in your household, and what it means to conduct ourselves uh, appropriately in that. Um, Be with me, Lord, as I seek to simply um, uh, discuss your truth uh, here amongst your people. We thank you for uh, the many gifts and blessings we have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we'll be in First and Second Timothy. And we will start by reading out of verse, excuse me, out of chapter 4. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is, as we said, a book written by the Apostle Paul after the resurrection of Jesus and Paul's conversion. He went around the uh, Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world, planting churches. And uh, when he was sort of finished, towards the end of his life, planting churches, he wrote letters back to some of the church planters he had left in some of the cities they'd planted churches in. And so Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted. And then Titus um, was a church planter on the island of Crete, uh, where they had planted a church there as well. And so as these pastors, uh, oftentimes uh, young pastors often need guidance, explanation, and encouragement. And so Paul wrote these letters to uh, these gentlemen to encourage them and to uh, reveal to them, as I said, how those in the body of Christ, those in the family of God are to conduct ourselves. And so we're seeking that here this morning. And so uh, what we've done is we've um, been looking at some themes within these three books rather than just going through them verse by verse. We've been looking at some themes. And so two weeks ago we looked at God's goodness, or excuse me, God's greatness and how that under is an undergirding theology to what Paul has to say to us. And so we see that God, uh, we see a God that is boundless, a God that is utterly unique, and a God that will never change. So God's greatness is seen and, and undergirds Paul's message to these pastors. Last week we looked at God's goodness, and we see that though we serve a God uh, who, uh, who would have been righteous in his judgment against us, and our sin, for our sin against him, he appeared to us, not in judgment, but in kindness. And he granted to us salvation. And so we not only know that God is great, but God is also good. Amen? So this will be our last week, kind of looking at the theological underpinnings of the message in these letters. And so we, if we're to take them as reliable, if we're to take them as uh, beneficial, as credible, as authoritative then we ought to know what their foundation is. And so their foundation is both, uh, the, the, foundational, the foundation of the message is both God's greatness, his goodness, and then also 
his word to us, as we'll see here this morning. And so look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars, whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If you put these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, uh, train yourselves in godliness, for the training of the body has a limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I want to point out here as we get started something that is central to Paul's teaching, the Apostle Paul's teaching throughout his writings and throughout his letters. And we see hints of it here, but just to expound it a little bit, the idea of knowledge, the idea of knowing something, and not only knowing something, but knowing the truth, knowing what is true, that, that concept is central, a central theme to most of Paul's writings. Now, we might take that for granted, those of us who have been uh, maybe a Christian a long time and have read uh, a lot of the Bible, and, and we think in those terms. We think in terms of knowledge and, and what we are to know and experience, and even this setting of teaching and explanation, all that goes into uh, what we know and how it's communicated, listening and, and teaching, all this whole environment that we're in. If you've been in it for a while, then it seems rather, rather normal to you, perhaps, but you don't have to walk out the door very far or very long to realize we live in a world where knowledge or truth and its teaching or propagation are not central to most people's lives. Most people believe that what's true for them is not necessarily true for you and that we all get to make up kind of our own narrative and our own story. I won't go into uh, the reason why uh, many people believe that too in depth this morning, but it has to do with the idea of postmodernism and what's known as deconstructualism. A guy named John Paul Sartre uh, was a 20th century philosophy um, professor, and he basically debased the idea that we could know anything from the written word, that you couldn't actually know or get inside somebody's head enough to know actually what, what they meant. And so therefore, rather than taking what the, the text means as true, you were given liberty in his view, to impose your own meaning upon the text. And so we come up with this idea of, of postmodern theory, postmodernism, relativity, rel- relative truth. And that would, that would be totally counter to what Paul's central thesis is in most of his writings. In most of his writings, you don't have to go very far until you come across this idea of knowledge, of knowing, of truth, of what is true and what is not true, this demarcation. So for Paul, there is no gray area. There is no relativity. There is what is right, and there is what is wrong. And what is right, as we'll explore here this morning, is found in Christ, ultimately, as we've read in Ephesians in weeks past. Ultimately, Jesus is the standard of truth. He is the standard uh, of right. And so, just to get ourselves familiar with, I don't want to go through all the examples this morning. There I, read, I did another reading this week of these three books that we've been in, and no less than 34 times does Paul directly mention the idea of knowledge, truth, teaching, or learning. And that was just a quick count. We could probably count them more uh, the time that he does this. And so it's a central theme of his letters, and so we could spend a lot of time just, time just going through and looking at each instance. And I would encourage you, as you are maybe in your personal time reading First, Second Timothy, and Titus, to maybe highlight or underline those times when Paul is talking about knowledge, truth, teaching, and learning. I want us to, though, try to, I want to try to encapsulate for you how important these concepts were for Paul 
as he wrote these letters. And I'm going to use two separate verses. The first one I want to use are two separate passages. The first one being in Titus. So if you turn with the book of Titus, Titus is, so it's First Timothy, Second Timothy, and then Titus, just a couple of pages apart. The first uh, chapter of Titus, the first three verses, listen carefully to how Paul introduces himself to somebody he already knows. So Titus was a traveling companion and a writing companion to Paul. They'd been with each other in ministry for many, many years. And so it's not like Titus doesn't know who Paul is. But despite that, Paul, knowing that this letter will go beyond Titus, wrote these words. Listen, listen carefully to how he introduces himself. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We aren't even a verse, a whole verse into the book, and Paul already mentions the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God, our Savior. So here again, Paul references the message that was being proclaimed, the message that was entrusted to Paul. The idea that Paul was entrusted with a piece of knowledge or truth, and he was then charged with the idea of spreading it and propagating it wherever he went. And so it was so important to Paul, that's how Paul introduced himself. Hi, my name's Paul. I propagate the knowledge of God, which leads to godliness. That's pretty important to Paul. I mean, I don't usually introduce myself. Hi, my name's Hamilton. I'm a propagator of God's truth for the, good, the holiness of God's people. Maybe I should start. I don't know. Maybe I should. I should work that out a little bit. It's so important to Paul that he, he opens a letter that way. He opens a letter that way. Secondly, let's look in 2 Timothy. So just one book back, just maybe even one page back. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this about the message or the truth, the knowledge of God. 2 Timothy 1 verse 11. For this gospel I was appointed a herald. Apostle and teacher. So here again, we're 11 verses into this book, and Paul is commenting on the fact that he's a herald or a, a propagator of this, a teacher of this knowledge. Verse 12. And that is why I suffer these things. Paul writing this, no doubt, from a prison cell, no doubt with open sores on his back, open wounds from the beatings he took. And he says the reason that he suffers these things is because he was appointed as a herald, as an apostle, as a teacher. So not only did Paul want to be known as somebody that propagated the truth, he was willing to suffer and ultimately willing to die to see that that truth got out. So Paul definitely was not a postmodern relativist. Paul was an absolutist. Paul believed that God's truth in Christ was absolutely true, and it was absolutely true for everybody. It was absolutely true for everybody. And so Paul's letters here, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, are just dripping with this idea. They're just dripping with this idea that God has some things he wants us to know. Now again, you might think that that's obvious, but I want us to really own that this morning, and I want us to grow in our awareness of the central role that correct knowledge, correct information plays in the life of the believer. Not only the role that the information plays, but also its transfer among us. So it's, it's teaching, it's propagation. And not only it being put out there, not only knowledge and information being put out there about how we are to conduct ourselves, but also the posture in which we are to receive that information. Communication, as they say, is a two-way street. It's the communicator communicating some piece of truth and then those that are listening, hearing it, receiving it, understanding it, and believing it. And so as, as just a summary, my goal today is to illuminate our awareness of the central role that the gospel information, its transfer, and its proper reception into our hearts play in the life of the believer and in the church as a whole. Today's focus is on the nature of the content and instruction and what it does when properly taught and received. Now, later on this summer, 
we'll talk about those that are to instruct or those that are to teach, how they are to teach and what God has called them to teach and how he's called them to go about doing that, their qualifications, as we might say. That's not really what we're talking about today. Today we're just going to talk about the focus. Uh, we're going to talk about the nature of the content and instruction. So what's it like? What does it mean? Uh, uh, let's get our heads around it. Let's build some confidence in our own hearts and minds into the knowledge that God has for us. So I bring us back to uh, this passage in 1 Timothy, a few pages back, the, the passage that we started out with. There's a few interesting phrases that I want to dissect this morning as we spend some time together. A few, few phrases that might be unfamiliar that jumped out to me that, that I, when I first reading it, I didn't know exactly what they meant. And so I thought we might explore them this morning. And if you uh, are taking notes or if you scratch in your Bible, uh, these are our, kind of our phrases for this morning. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy in verse 5, he says, um, well, let's start in verse 4, give it some context. For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So, so that, there's a phrase there I want to explore, sanctified by the word of God and prayer. What, what does that mean? What does it even mean by the word of God? What is the word of God? What's its nature? I'm going to talk about that this morning. And then another phrase that really jumped out to me this morning uh, as I studied this uh, earlier is in verse 7. But have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. And I want us to begin to think about what it would mean to take a training perspective to our Christian life, to our godliness. What might that mean for our lives today? And so first, I want to think about this idea about uh, the Word of God and the nature of the Word of God and what that might mean for us today. Paul also uh, references this in verse 6, as we read earlier. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. So the words of God, the idea that, that the words of God are nourishing and the idea that there is a, this, this sense of a good teaching that Timothy had followed. What is the nature of these teachings? What is the nature of the Word of God? And to find out the nature of this, I want us to turn to 2 Timothy. Back to 2 Timothy. Paul expounds a little bit more about the nature of God's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In order to give this a little perspective, I'm going to start in verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, all those who want to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again, back to knowledge or what somebody believes. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from childhood, you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes this grand statement that many, many Christians throughout the centuries have stood upon and even died for. The idea is this, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's going to be a focus for us this morning, is, is the nature and the, and, and the facilitation, what, what, what it actually does in our lives here as we read this. And so let's just look at a, two, two things right away is the nature of, of God's Word. Number one, I'm equating here, and I believe the text is as well, equating here God's Word as being written down for us and then passed along to us by the Holy Spirit. And that's what's meant here by the phrase, all Scripture is inspired. And so we begin to equate these two things. And again, you might take this for granted. You might know that, think, or know or think that everybody believes this, but that's not necessarily true. The Bible, Paul believed, 
that, that the Holy Spirit, that God himself inspired the writing of this book. And so Paul here no doubt definitely means by Scripture or by God's Word, he means the Old Testament. But as you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, you begin to understand he has such utter confidence in what God has revealed to him to the point where he knows that he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He is what uh, he calls himself an apostle, somebody who, who, who speaks forth or goes forth on God's behalf. He's a representative of God, like an Old Testament prophet speaking the words of God, having this authority to speak for God. In addition to that, uh, the apostle Peter, in uh, his second book, Second Peter, has also placed in a tremendous amount of confidence in Paul's teachings, even though Peter found them difficult to believe and understand regarding Gentile salvation. He still uh, put them in the camp of Old Testament uh, scriptures, 2 Peter uh, uh, 3, 15 and 16. And so this idea of being inspired, this idea of the scriptures being equated with God's word, or being inspired. One a commentator said this, that the scriptures, they owe their origin and distinctiveness to God himself. And that this is the abiding character of scripture. The idea that it comes from God. Its origin or its source is God himself. And we studied what, it, what, what God is like in the last two weeks. God is both great and he's both good. And so we see that this idea of inspiration, this idea that God... Uh, God breathed is literally what the term means, to be inspired of God. That it is the, the nature and the character of the Scripture themselves. It's what undergirds them. It's what makes them meaningful in the lives of any believer. First, uh, uh, in First Peter, Peter the Apostle also spoke to this. He used this phrase, that men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter uses this phrase, Moved by the Holy Spirit, Paul uses the phrase inspired. Inspired. And so it's on the basis of this inspiration, this ba- the, on the basis of the idea that God uh, has inspired words and that God has particular meaning associated with those words and that those words have come to those who believe like, uh, like Timothy. Let's go back and review. Think about now the Scriptures as being inspired or God-breathed, and now let's read again what Paul says about Timothy in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those that taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is wanting Timothy to center his life on what he already knows to be true, That is that the scriptures are both inspired and not just inspired as a novelty, but inspired for utility as well regarding salvation. And so from there, the the nature of these being inspired, you know, what that does for us as, as Christians, what it does for us as believers is it elevates the Bible. It elevates it far above and beyond any other sacred writing. And so for many Christians throughout centuries, they've cherished the idea, they've devoted their life to the, to the copying, to the careful management, to the careful uh, care and preservation of this text. Why? Because they fundamentally believe these are not man's words, but these are God's words. And whereas most of man's words have been lost to history, God's words have been preserved and better preserved than any other ancient text ever. Just visit the Museum of the Bible, and you will utterly be blown away at the preservation of these ancient words. And so we can have confidence that the words that we have in front of us are the words that were written down by those men that God chose to inspire. And so these aren't just ancient texts. These aren't just ancient stories. These aren't just myths. These are the words that God wanted his people to know. And therefore, we have the second part of that first phrase. So all scripture is inspired by God. That's that's really important. Therefore, 
or, or Paul uses the word and, is profitable. And is profitable. Now, I don't have to go far into the Greek for us to understand what the word profitable means. Maybe just for our, because we live in such a commercialized context, profitable doesn't necessarily mean, and usually doesn't mean, in, in contexts like these, anything to do with money or commerce, right? Not profit in that sense, but simply to the advantage of, the benefit of, or for the good. And this, this word here is only used three times in the New Testament in this way. And it's in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So in all three letters, Paul uses this idea of profit in those contexts, in the context of Ephesus and Crete. And I would suspect he uses such a term perhaps because in those commercial environments, Ephesus being a very a bustling hub of commerce right on the shore, and Crete in, in the same similar way as an island, as a passing through way, that they would have understood this idea of profitability or of advantage, of benefit, or of good. And so the, the, the scriptures are inspired, yes, but not only are they inspired, but they are beneficial. They have advantage to knowing them. Knowing them puts us at an advantage. It gives us the leg up. It gives us the leg up. Let me just summarize these two concepts before we move on any further. This is uh, the statement that we put out as what we believe about the Scriptures, uh, just to summarize some of these things. The Holy Bible, we believe, was written by men divinely inspired. And it is God's revelation of Himself to man. The Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God as its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and totally trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and religious opinions should be tried all scripture is a testimony to christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation this single statement right here along with many other that have been put forth throughout the centuries has gotten a lot of people in trouble it's got a lot of people persecuted and it's even got a lot of people murdered this idea that this text is from God for God's people and that they are to take it seriously and they are to take it alone as authority has gotten a lot of people in a lot of trouble. That simple belief. But that simple belief has also turned the world upside down and continues to in this day. And part of the reason it does is not just because people are upset that you might take it as authoritative, but people get upset that they're not in authority, but the scriptures are, and that we are to conduct our, our lives not according to some outside authority, but according to what the Word of God says. So that's the nature of God's Word, the nature of the words of God that have been preserved for us, the nature of of Scripture is that it comes from God and that it is beneficial. Well, what is it beneficial for? What does it do? I take us back to 1 Timothy 4 where we talked about this phrase, I brought up this phrase about being sanctified by the Word of God. And then later on in chapter 4, Paul says, as we read, to train ourselves in godliness. What does it mean to enter into a training regimen uh, with God for godliness. What does it mean to be sanctified by the word of God or made holy by the word of God? This idea of training and sanctification, this idea of, of changing from one thing to another is really, I think, the idea of what Paul is going at there. It makes me think about my own experience in training. Now, as you may not be able to tell, I haven't done a whole lot of training in my life. And there's two sad stories regarding that my own training. And when I was in high school, uh, me and another friend, of, a friend of mine went uh, to a gym for a youth event, an all-night youth event, right? Bringing back some, maybe some memories here. 
all-night youth event at this gym, and it was the best gym in our area. And we didn't have a lot of gyms. We grew up in a pretty rural area, but this was the best gym. They had basketball courts, and they had a indoor soccer place, and they had weights, of course, and the spa or the uh, sauna. You can tell I was there a lot. You know, there, all the stuff that they had there. And so we decided that we were going to get memberships. We decided we were going to get memberships. And it was pretty expensive. I was in high school. I worked uh, on the side mowing grass, and so I didn't have a lot of money, but decided to splurge on a year-long commitment, a year-long membership for this gym. And so that was in January, and so my membership ran that entire calendar year. And does anyone want to guess how many times I went to the gym in that year? Nate, Nate had it. Two. We went twice. To sign the paperwork and to ask them to cancel it <laughs> were the two times I went to the gym. So my training in, in, in godliness, or my, my training, physical training, as Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy, was not, not a great experience. The other one that was slightly better but still couldn't, couldn't kind of get me over the hump was when I was in seminary. And uh, so, some of you have heard this story. I had a friend uh, who was in the Marine Corps who retired from the Marine Corps and came to seminary. And he said, you know, uh, what we should do, he said, we should go running every morning. That'd be great. I said, you know, it's always something I wanted to do, and I've never had the motivation to do it. So, yeah, let, let's try it. And then I said, no, when you say the morning, what do you mean by the word morning? And he said, oh, I don't know, like 4.30? I was like, no, that is not the morning. That is still the night for me. We haven't broken into morning yet. And he's like, all right. He said, I'll sleep in a little bit. Let's do five. And I said, no, I'm not doing five. And he's like, all right, well, I love you. You're a good friend. Let's do 5.30. And I said, I'll, we'll try 5.30. And so for a few weeks, we got up at 5.30 and went running on the trail beside the seminary there. I lost a few pounds, and I hated every minute of it. It was terrible. And my friend Leland, of course, was a Marine, and he was used to talking while we ran. That was something fun he did. I can barely put one foot in front of the other trying to keep up, you know. And he's there talking, and he's there. Later I found out that the running regimen that we did was actually one, uh, it was a regimen that you do when you come back from injury. You, you know, you slow the pace way down, and you modify it in, in a great deal. Yeah, that's what he used with me, was, the, was trying to come back from injury. That's how out of shape I was. Um, so I, I hated every minute of it. So my experience with training has not been all that great. And so uh, th that's been my experience with training on that side. And so let's think more about our, our idea. Maybe you've had some training experiences as well. Maybe those have gone well, and maybe you've had some good experiences with that, and maybe not so well. But Paul is talking here this morning about this idea about training in righteousness or training in godliness is the two phrases that he uses throughout the books. And so this idea of training or changing, and then this gets us back to this idea of sanctifying that Paul uses uh, in verse 5, as we've read, the sanctifying work. What does that look like? What does the churn look like for those of us that believe that the Scriptures are not only inspired, but also then profitable? In what ways are they profitable? Well, Paul goes on here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he tells us the ways in which they are profitable. And so let's look quickly. They are profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. These, these four ways that we see here that Paul talks about the, the profitability of the Scriptures. The profitability of the Scriptures. And so, let's explore these for a little bit this morning. For those who are of us that are interested, okay, well, how do we grow? How do we be sanctified, or how do we tr become trained in godliness? These are four ways that the scriptures, you know, they, they are what they are, and they sit on our shelves, but when they have an impact upon us, in what ways do they impact us, or in what ways do we interact with them? So first we see teaching. Again, this is something that Paul talks about repeatedly throughout these three books. It's the first and foremost, right out of the gate, very important to Paul. And it's just like it sounds like, right? The importance of what Paul would talk about as sound doctrine or sound teaching, correct knowledge, teaching and knowing what is most important. Basically, all the things that, the, the idea of how we ought to live, as we've talked about in weeks past um, from our theme verse, 
how we ought to conduct ourselves. This idea of teaching, of putting out there the proper way to order uh, everything, right? To order our lives, to order how we think, to order how we feel, what we believe, uh, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we spend doing, what our lives are invested in. The scriptures are what dictates that for those who serve God. So they teach us how we ought to be. Secondarily, they teach us what we are not to be. They rebuke us and they rebuke false teaching and errors. They convict the misguided and the disobedient. And they expose error within the community of believers. And so we have this idea of rebuking where we point out what is right through teaching and what is wrong through rebuke. The idea here is even both personally, privately, as we've read in Matthew 18, where we go to one another in, in, in helping one another overcome sin, but then also in a public sense, putting forth statements like I just read about what it means for the Bible to be inspired, what it means for us to believe something like the Bible. And so we publicly put out these uh, truths, this teaching, and then that allows us then to publicly say, no, that is a false belief, that is not true, that is not what the Bible says, that is not Christianity. This idea of rebuking error. Paul also points the idea of correcting. This sense of restoring one to a right path. And so, yes, teaching them right, rebuking the wrong, and then also coming beside and restoring one to a right path. Restoring doctrine or personal practice to a right state before God. Like, like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, continually were brought back onto the correct path again through God's correction through his word in knowing what is right and knowing what is wrong they empower us to be corrected and then finally this idea of training this idea of uh, what what Paul might here call moral training that leads us ultimately to righteous living this this phrase or this word training is the same word Paul uses in Ephesians 6 4 when he talks about bringing up children in the training and instruction of of the Lord. And so Paul has this idea, a very intentional sense, a disciplined sense of what the scriptures can do and what they ought to do for the believer and how they work to sanctify and how they work to benefit or to profit the believer. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't been regenerated, as we talked about last week, if you've not been washed by the Holy Spirit and regenerated anew, those things may not sound very appealing or attractive at all. In fact, that might sound like the worst time of your life. And I understand that. The passions of your heart are totally different. The passions of your heart are totally different. They're going in a completely separate and different direction. But Paul says, as we talked about again in the last two weeks, that the message of Christ, the message of the gospel is that we no longer have to go our own way and seek to figure out things on our own, but we can submit to God's way. We can submit to His inspired way. We can glorify Him with our lives. We don't have to wander around. We don't have to wander in rebellion and in uh, passion, seeking things just for ourselves, but rather we can seek to glorify God in Christ. And so we see this idea of training and this idea of, uh, of correcting, rebuking, and teaching as the means in which God uses the scriptures to transform us from what we were into what we ought to be, which is the image of Christ. Paul then kind of gives us the payoff statement or the benefit of all of this in verse 17. So that the man of God, and that word there, he's, he's, he's kind of referencing Timothy specifically, but if we take it out a little bit and we, we apply it more universally, the man or woman of God, might be complete, equipped for every good work. As we talked about last week, all of Paul's ministry, all of Paul's talk of grace, all of his talk of forgiveness and, and rece- reception into uh, the family of God always results in good works. It always results in that. And so the purpose of all of this, the purpose of our sanctification, the purpose of our training is not for our benefit. It's not even for our good necessarily. But it's actually for the good of others. It's actually for the benefit of the world we live in, the benefit of the communities that we live in. So it isn't about us profiting. It's actually about the world profiting 
through our sanctification. So we see this idea of completeness. Paul goes on there in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he talks about the opposite posture. I'll just read this quickly. What about somebody who's opposed to this idea? Well, Paul says here, chapter 4, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing uh, and his kingdom, he's instructing Timothy to proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Now, this is the opposite perspective. Verse 3, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths, Paul says here. So this opposite posture of of heaping up teachers that speak to what we already know and what we already think. They feed into the system. They don't rebuke us. They don't correct us. They don't put us on the right path. They don't put us on an inspired path of Scripture, but rather they come up with something new, and they come up with something that we will tolerate. Friends, we ought to be in churches where things are said that sound intolerable. If we are only in environments where we can tolerate the news that we're hearing, then we're probably not hearing what we ought to hear. Verse 3, I'm just so struck by it. For the time will come where they will not tolerate sound doctrine. They're intolerant of the inspiration and the profitability of Scripture. That is the posture that is counter to what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so now I just want us to reflect a little bit on our own hearts and our own lives. Reflect a little bit on our own postures towards the Scriptures, what we think, what we believe. And Maybe you're here this morning and you have some questions. Maybe you uh, have heard some different things about what it means about the inspiration of the Bible. And you, and you haven't quite worked all that out yet. And that's okay. We talk more here about, we, we try to talk more here about a posture towards things and not necessarily just, uh, are you in or are you out? And so, if you have questions like that that remain, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or come talk to Pastor Brian. We would love to talk more about what it means for the Scripture to be inspired. And that's my hope here this morning, is that we grow in our confidence in this idea that these words come from God. These words come from God. Not only do they come from God, but I want us to grow in the idea that because they come from God, they are profitable for us. So I want to ask us this morning, do our actions reflect this idea of profitability? Do they reflect what we believe we say or what we say we believe about the Bible? Do our lives reflect that? Do our, our actions during the week reflect a love for what God has to say to us or not? Is our posture towards the words of God like a, an individual uh, that uses their gym membership or that doesn't. And don't be like me in my gym membership is what I'm trying to say. Don't use it twice a year. Don't even just use it twice a month. How about twice a week or twice a day or twice an hour? How about utterly building our lives upon God's words? Because if we're not building our lives upon God's words, whose words are we building our lives upon? Whose instruction and teaching is more profitable or beneficial for us than God's? Well, when we treat the nightly news like it's more important than God's words, guess what? That's exactly what we're doing. So I would postulate this morning that we ought to train ourselves in righteousness just to take us back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, this idea of training in godliness. As Paul says here, I'll read it again in verse 7. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Look at this example Paul gives. For the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds uh, the promise for the present life and for also the life of to come. And so, like I said, don't be like me and my limited gym membership. 
But let's be rock stars in training for godliness. Let's devote ourselves to that. Now, I have a few minutes left, and so I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to just give you real quick of how you might be able to do that. If you say, yes, I want to be able to do that, I just want to give you a quick path forward on how you are to do that. And so what we're going to talk about is these, these four things. And so if you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one, if you want to train yourself in godliness, train yourself in righteousness, number one, have a goal. Set time aside. Set it in the calendar. Have a goal. Be very specific. What day and what time is this going to happen? And, and make it be realistic. You know, some people want to read the Bible through, read the Bible through in a year. They think that's the only way to do it. Well, I got to tell you, I've never read through the Bible in a year. It's hard to do. And so maybe that's not a good goal for you. Maybe a good goal for you is, can you read over this text once or twice this week? Or read these books once or twice this week? Start with something. Once a week, twice a week, three times a week, so on and so forth. What works for you? So number one, have a goal, specific goal. Number two, set aside a specific time. So if your goal is to do it once a week, study the scriptures, when will you do that? Be very specific. Date and time. Make sure it works for your schedule. Make sure you can be alert and engaged at that time. If it means you have to cancel something, I would suggest just cancel it. It's fine. Number three, use a tool. Have some kind of tool available that you can use. Maybe you have a tool that you've got that you like to use and you just haven't used it in a while. That's okay. I have one here called the HEAR, H-E-A-R, Bible study. And so is there anybody here that would like a tool in their hand for studying the scriptures? Anybody? Pass a couple of these out. Reagan, would you pass these out? Give them to them whether they ask for them or not. So the HEAR Bible study method is a tool that we can use. Don't just read the text and think you're magically going to come up with what it means and what it means for your life. You can use a tool or an aid. This is a, this is a good one we've been using recently in some different contexts, like the WTB a Bible study that we do. This is a way that we can study the Scriptures, and so I'll just go over this quickly as Reagan passes it out. There's four main components of the H-E-A-R, the HEAR Bible study. Number one, highlight the verse that speaks to you. So this is basically where you are in the text. What are you going to be studying? The name of the book and the chapter and verses that stand out, the chapters and verses you're going to read. Number two, explain what the passage means. So this is just some contextual information. Reagan, do you need some more? This is some contextual information. Who wrote it? Who was it written to and why did they write it? And then the passage that you're reading, what comes before and after? What's its internal context? And then lastly, and most importantly, what is the Holy Spirit intending to communicate through this text? Not what does it say to you yet. Don't get to you. Don't think of you first. Think first of the Holy Spirit inspiring this person to write this down. What does the Holy Spirit want to communicate in the text that you're reading? Then apply. Apply what God is saying in these verses to your life. What does this mean today in general? And then what is God saying to you personally? How can this message apply to your life? And then lastly, R is respond. So we had highlight, explain, apply, and then lastly, respond to what God has said to you. How will you be transformed by what you've learned? How will you think, uh, feel, act? Um, uh, uh, how, what will you do differently? How will, how will it transform how you think from what you've learned? And then what action does that then call you to? In what way does this passage call you to action? And then lastly, write a prayer to God for what you have read. So these are, it's a great way, I think. Um, if you'll notice this format, these will also be out on the table uh, out in the fellowship hall. And so we have these uh, green books available. I know some people have been using them. I know that I have. This format is so you can fold it in half, and you can punch it along the side, and you can put it in your, in your books. Right, Robin? Yep, Robin will do it, I know. Um, so they're meant to do that. Meant, and then if you need more, 
All you got to do is come and trade in your filled out one, and I'll give... No, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. But you can pick them up in the fellowship hall if you need more than, more than that. Okay, so we said have a goal, set a time, use a tool, and then lastly, grab a friend. Grab a friend. Don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. But be accountable to somebody. Get their help. First time you go, maybe you've never had a regular diet of the study of the Scriptures. Maybe you've never trained before. Well, the greatest uh, way to fail at training is to do it by yourself, if you've never done it before. And the best way to succeed is to use the buddy system. And so grab a friend, either to study it with you or just to keep you accountable. Tell them what your goal is, tell them what your time is, and then go over what the tool is with them so to make sure you understand it. But don't think you have to go at this alone. I, I would love uh, to meet with, with folks, with somebody, and go through this and work on this with somebody. And so if you don't have any friends, come see me. I don't have a lot of friends either, so it will be a great fit. And then we can come together, and we can study, and we can train together. So I hope this morning that I have done uh, what I set out to do. I hope I have stirred our passions and our understanding for what God's Word is and what it can do in our lives. I, I hope this morning that we can uh, grow in our appreciation, in our awareness of the central role that God's Word should play in our life. And I hope that we can uh, grow in our uh, reception of it and the work that it's doing in our hearts to teach us, to rebuke us, correct us, and train us. Ultimately, that we might be about our Father's business in this world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for your truth, your word to us, Lord, and the work that it does in our hearts. And I pray this morning that that is what occurs by your Holy Spirit. Lord, lead us and guide us in training. Don't leave us out alone, but be with us. Carry us along, Lord, ultimately, that we might be equipped for every good work that you've called us to. May we not step into any situation ill-equipped. But God, because you've called us to your scriptures, we are well-equipped. We thank you for that this morning. Lead us and guide us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.